Friendship isn't the big things, it's a million little things. Hello friends, and welcome to this, A Million Little TV Shows podcast. I'm Mike, and I'll be delving into TV shows that I feel don't seem to get enough love. Over the course of the pod, we'll break down episodes and talk about my thoughts and feelings on the shows. Welcome back guys, this is season 2, episode 6. I really can't believe that I've gone, what, 19 episodes now, spanning over two seasons, but I'm really enjoying it and I'm really thinking I'm finding my stride now a little bit more. I'm getting a bit more confident with the mic in front of me. Uh, I'm getting through the episodes a bit quicker myself and obviously I'm doing it all myself as well so I'm editing and I'm feeling a bit better about this. I don't know how it reflects actually to you guys, but hopefully you'll come back and tell me. Like I've said before, my numbers are going up, so that's a good thing. People are listening, so hopefully things are going well. How are you, by the way? Come tell me. Come say hi in the comments. It's always good to engage with an audience. So I'd love to hear from you guys. Now, today, for Season 2, Episode 6, I'm going to be covering Inside Number 9, Season 2. Episodes 1 to 3. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Episode 1, La Couchette. The cast for this episode is Shearsmith as Maxwell, Pemberton as Jorg, Julie Hesman-Halg as Kath, Mark Benton as Les, Jessica Gunning as Shona, and Jack Whitehall as Hugo. So Maxwell, an Englishman, seems to be just getting ready for bed. He's on a sleeper train, what we can only assume is travelling across Europe. He gets into bed, he puts his eye mask on, and lays down to rest. We can see that there's another person in the carriage with him, but he seems to be fast on. And by fast on, I mean it's a local term for being asleep. Just as he puts his head down, a second man emerges. York comes through the door and creates disruption all around. He is oafish in his behaviour. He's he's farting and spitting out of windows and watching porn on his phone. He's creating a lot of noise while getting ready to get into his bunk. And not only that, he ends up climbing to the top bunk to sleep, which causes great disruption because he's on Maxwell's side of the carriage. Eventually he settles after disturbing Maxwell several times and then a couple appear. Kath and Les seem to be going somewhere on holiday. They've got cases with them, and they have suit bags, so it seems like they're going to an event while they're there. Kath tries her hardest to try and get her husband to recognise the fact that there are people in that carriage as well, and that they're trying to sleep. But throughout, he is creating disruption, turning lights on, and generally being loud, as well as the fact that when he's told by his wife that They were meant to be on the top two bunks, one on the left, one on the right. She tells him that they can't get on the top bunk because there's a guy up there, and that is York. So, Kath suggests taking the bottom two bunks, but because he's a guy, and generally we are big children, Les obviously just wants to be on the top bunk. Kath suggests that her and Les get into the same bed to avoid any more fuss. But as they get in, they just end up causing more. They're trying to get undressed, but they're just making way too much noise. They keep doing shots of Maxwell just getting more and more visibly frustrated. It's then that Shona walks in. 
It's then that Shona walks in. She's an Australian backpacker, and she's obviously just enjoying herself, enjoying the adventure of it all. And she's on the phone, laughing and joking with whoever's on the end of it. She asks what country they're currently in, and it seems like they're in France. So she throws her bag onto her bunk, which is the opposite bottom bunk, to where Jorg should be. And she heads out into the corridor, but leaves the door open. So... The train is just so noisy, and with the door open, it's just creating more and more noise. So it's at this point that Maxwell gets even more frustrated, walks over and slams the door. It's revealed that Kath and Les are on their way to their daughter's wedding in the French mountains, and that Maxwell is on his way to an interview. He's trying to get some sleep before he arrives, so that he's fresh for his interview. And it's revealed that he's just over eight hours from his destination. Eventually, Kath and Les realise that it's no good they're not going to be able to stay on the same bunk together. So Les has to speak to York and ask him if he'll move. But York misinterprets what he's trying to say. Les tells him that you're in my wife's bunk and York thinks it's an invitation for his wife to go over and be with York. She then tells him, no, no, you're going to have to go down. And he says, yeah, I'm okay with that. Eventually, Maxwell speaks fluent German and tells him that he needs to come down and go onto the bottom bunk and that he is in the wrong bed. Eventually all the arrangements are sorted and everyone is in their correct bed now. Shona comes back and she's got company, Hugo. She sits on her bunk with Hugo and starts drinking and they're chatting about their adventures around Europe. Hugo's English and seems to be as well-travelled as Shona. Shona suggests that instead of being in this carriage because of all the people that are in there, they should head back to Hugo's carriage which is apparently in first class. But he tells her, no, we'll just stay here. It's much nicer. So they start fooling around and get into the bunk properly. It's at this point, the man above them appears from out of nowhere, but his eyes are glassy and he looks dead. Shona pushes him and he falls to the floor. And then everyone panics because this man is dead in their carriage. Maxwell gets out of his bed and goes down to see what's going on. He declares himself as a doctor. He tells everyone that he's going off to try and find a train guard. When he comes back, declaring that there's no one about, it's suggested by York that they smash the alarm to stop the train and therefore ensure that someone will come and find the body. But it's here that we find out that Hugo is actually a stowaway. He's got on the train, he doesn't have a ticket, and he was looking for someone like Shona to just try and get into a bunk for the night. So he doesn't want the train to be stopped. But Les wants to raise the alarm anyway, as do a few of the others. But Les mainly wants to do it because, like a child again, he can smash one of the alarms, and it be for the right reason. Just as he's about to smash it, Maxwell pipes up and says, but if you do, I'm going to be late for my interview at the World Health Organization in Geneva. So I'd prefer if you didn't. He's been dead for four hours and there'd be no point. They can't do anything right now. And if we stop the train, we may not get to the destination on time. But Kath tells Les, just do it until he raises the point that what if they're stopped properly and they can't get off the train? They may not get to their own daughter's wedding and they'll never hear the end of it. So they decide to put the body back on its bunk and just ride out the rest of the night. And then authorities will find him in the morning. Just before they all head back to bed, Maxwell speaks to York and tells him the plan. But while he's there, he gives him a laxative because it seems that York is a little bit backed up. Apparently, a lot of beer and bratwurst. He's just a little backed up, so he's tossing and turning most of the night. 
Kath is pissed off with Les because of the whole situation about not wanting to report about the man's death. And Shona is pissed off with Hugo because he lied to her. Hugo stays in the carriage and ends up spooning with the dead man. As they continue the night, all of a sudden the train is stopped. And Shona starts looking out the window, telling them that she can see a body. When Les looks over to where Kath was... She's no longer there, and he's worried that she's thrown herself on the tracks. Maxwell is also going nuts because he thinks she's also killed herself, but it's because of the body, and he's calling her a stupid cow. She should have just waited until the morning. Everything would have been fine. And by now, the laxatives have really started to kick in, and Jorg is about to blow. So Hugh grabs the nearest container to him and holds it behind Jorg while he shits all over Kath's shoes for the wedding. Eventually the door opens and it's Kath and she wonders what the hell's going on. It's revealed that what was on the track was just a deer. A while later they're packing up the carriage. They've took the man into bed properly and they're all making their way out of the carriage. Hugo has been trying to help out Jorg to get cleaned up while everyone else is just gathering their things. They all leave, apart from Maxwell, who just takes a call. It's from the driver who's about to take him to the World Health Organization building and tells him that he's waiting at the station and that they will... and that he's also... He's told that they're waiting for Dr. Meyer as well and they're going to take them both to their interviews. But Maxwell tells him that you don't have to worry too much about Dr. Meyer. I don't think he's coming. And then he turns and starts addressing the body. He tells him that he's sorry. Dr. Meyer, but I don't think you're going to make your interview. At this point, Jorg stands in the doorway and says, I'm Dr. Meyer. And he speaks to him in German, but clearly telling him that he's Dr. Meyer and that he has an interview today at the World Health Organization. And it's here that you realize that Maxwell has killed the man who he thought was his competition, but actually he misjudged who his competition was as Jorg walks out the door laughing. Now this twist, and I know I say it with every Inside Number 9, it gets me every time. And I know it's coming, because I've seen the episodes, and I've seen it several times, but still, perfect. It's such a good twist, there's so much going on in around the, all the characters, darting and dotting about, and how they do it in such a small, compact room. And then all of a sudden it's just revealed that he's killed someone and he's killed the wrong man. And that the man that I'm sure the audience would have judged as just being some bum or some German oaf was actually going to be the man who was his competition. It's brilliant. It's so, so clever and so just subverts everything. I've watched this several times over the years and in preparation for this, I've watched it a couple of times now. And it still gives me goosebumps when I watch it, even though I know the answer. It's just, yeah, it's so clever. I love it. I absolutely love it. Episode 2, The Twelve Days of Christine, starring Sheridan Smith as Christine and Tom Riley as Adam, Stacey Liu as Fung, Michelle Dottrice as Marion, Paul Copley as Ernie, and in this episode, Shearsmith plays a stranger, while Pemberton plays Bobby. We start off and it's Christmas. Christine has been out on a night out for a Christmas party and she's been brought home by Adam. They've both been dressed up. Adam is a firefighter and Christine is a nun and they're both making puns about each other's outfits. Things like, I'd like to check out the fireman's pole, etc. 
they're heavily flirting and you can see that this is sort of the first time that they've been together. They're trying not to make noise because it may wake up Christine's housemate, Fung. The phone rings and Christine goes over to answer it. As she does, she picks it up and it's a different time. She's now dressed ready for work and it's February 14th, Valentine's Day. And as Fung tells Christine, it's 13 months later. So now her and Adam have been dating just over a year. They're flirting some more and asking whether they have received each other's Valentine's cards yet. Christine hangs up and goes and speaks to Fung to see what her day's going to be like, to see if she's going to be out of the flat for later on when Adam comes over. It's at this point she gets another Valentine's card through the post, but it seems to be from her ex-boyfriend, who she hasn't seen since she was 12. And the card seems to be very juvenile when it's read aloud. It seems that another year passes and Christine and Adam are still together. And it's Mother's Day in the UK. Christine's mum's visiting her and she's showing photographs to Adam of Christine when she was a baby. But it seems that she's just trying to embarrass her, as all mums do, when it comes to showing off old pictures of you. But Adam's into it right up until the point when the word marriage comes up and how Christine's dad would like to walk her down the aisle before it's too late. Adam gets up to go and get a biscuit, in air quotes, to avoid the conversation, really, while Christine tells her mum that she shouldn't say stuff like that. She knows that Adam's not in that zone right now, but Christine's mum, Marion, tells her that kids your age deserve to get married. It's not a bad thing to be getting married these days, and that people of that generation seem to think that it's a dirty word now. It's Easter. Fung has moved out. And now Adam is moving in. So him and Christine can now be properly together. As he goes to collect more of his stuff, which Christine is starting to worry about because there is a hell of a lot of it, she tells him, before you go, hurry back because I've got a surprise for you. She starts going around the flat and placing Easter eggs all over. As she gets to the bedroom, all of a sudden she bends over and an egg, an actual egg, is thrown at the wall. She jumps, turns around and starts walking back towards the kitchen, calling for Adam. Again, another egg strikes and she continues towards the kitchen. As she gets there, there's no one. She turns on the light and it starts to flicker and she sees eggs strewn all over the floor. At that point, she looks over to the pantry and the door is slowly closing. She heads over, opens the pantry door, but there's no one inside. She hears a noise from behind her and she turns around to see a man soaked and wearing a cagoule resembling her ex-boyfriend who says I'm sorry and walks towards her. She screams and wakes herself up. She's in bed with Adam. It's Maybank holiday. It's Maybank holiday and Adam tells her that since she's up maybe she could go and make him a cup of tea because he has no work to go to today. As she leaves the bed we realise that not only is she and Adam now married but she is heavily pregnant. The rest of that day is them spent together and they are building the crib for the baby. Christine starts to cry and Adam goes to comfort her and asks her what's wrong and she tells him that she doesn't want things to change. When this baby comes, it's going to change everything. We then see a baby monitor on the bedside table of Christine and the baby is crying through it. Adam gets up to go and see what's going on and is looking after her while Christine is still in bed. She hears Adam's voice and then takes a card out of the dresser drawer. 
that is a Father's Day card. So we can only assume that it's now June and the baby is one year old. As she places the card on the pillow, she hears another voice coming through the baby monitor. It's the same voice that she heard before. The voice of the stranger that was in the kitchen two years ago on Easter. She bolts out of bed and runs towards the baby's room, screaming. Adam comes in holding the baby, asking her what's wrong, and that he was trying to get the baby down, and then just tells her to come back to bed. We head into July, and it's Christine's 30th birthday. She's having a party around her flat, and everyone's there, including her dad. But her dad, as it was stated earlier, didn't have long, and it shows. He's now in what seems to be sort of a catatonic state. He doesn't really seem to be talking to anyone or engaging with anyone at all, even Christine as she stood by his side, or his wife, who is trying to engage with him. He's just stood blankly, staring, holding a balloon. Christine's best friend from work, Bobby, has bought her a present, and it's a set of shoes that she really wanted but weren't in her size, so he's managed to get them from another branch with a staff discount. Adam is nowhere to be seen, and when Christine asks her mum, does she know when Adam's going to be coming, her mum says she has no idea. At that very moment, he walks through the door with another woman, who seems to be a work colleague of his named Zara. Marion decides to play a birthday game with her daughter, something that she's always done since she was six. She blindfolds her and tells her that the first person that she catches will have to give her the gift that they bought her. At this point, it seems that Adam is sneaking off with Zara, just at the point when she gets blindfolded. She walks around the flat and grabs her dad, who screams, and she apologises, but then she continues walking. She walks towards the bedroom and hears a noise, like springs on a bed. She removes her blindfold and opens the door. In there is Adam on a suitcase, trying to get it closed, and we realise we've switched into August. Another year has gone, and they are now about to go on holiday. But there's obvious tensions between the two of them. Adam wants to go back to the way things were between them, and he feels that since their son Jack has come along, everything has been ruined. This holiday was meant to be for them, but since Christine's dad has died, Christine felt it would be unfair for her to hand off their son to her mother in her time of grief. Christine goes and gets the passports, and as she's looking at the photo of a young baby Jack, we cut to a video of Jack on his first day of school. Again, we've gone a year forward, and it is now September. Christine can't take her son to school, and therefore Marion is doing it for her. She waves him goodbye, and then goes over to some boxes that look a little familiar. They look like the boxes that Adam originally turned up with, and they're packed full of CDs, and as she's going through it, she sees a CD that they used to play together, and she starts to break down. A figure starts walking towards her, and sits down behind her, and you realise it's her dad, and he starts speaking to her, and telling her not to worry, and that everything's going to be okay, but she feels like she's losing everyone. She's lost Adam, and now she feels like she's losing Jack as well, even though he'll be back at three. She feels like her ambition is gone, and she's 32, and works in a shoe shop with her best friend. She doesn't feel like she can get any lower. We turn to October and Halloween, Christine and Bobby are getting ready for a night out while they're waiting on Adam. Eventually the door goes and Adam walks in. Christine just shouts at him. Jack's in his room and you've got some explaining to do. So all we see is someone in the background scurry past 
and close the door. We then hear the door knock, and Christine goes to answer, thinking it's trick-or-treaters. But it's Adam, saying, Why didn't you tell me that the lift was out? Christine rushes back into the flat and heads towards Jack's room. In there, she finds the stranger in the Mac, all wet and holding Jack. And he says, don't worry, I've got him. We cut to bonfire night, November 5th, and Christine is coming home with Jack in her arms and he's crying. She rushes towards the bathroom and puts his hand under cold water. As you can hear, the rockets going off in the background. She's on the phone to Adam, telling him that she needs him to come over. She needs him here because... Jack is really hurt and she's worried. She tells him that Jack has touched a sparkler and the metal was too hot and it's burnt him. Adam says that he'll be over as soon as he can and that he's on his way now and that he loves her. She's taken back by this, but by now her mother has already turned up and she's looking after Jack. She comes back through and tells Christine that she doesn't understand what she's talking about. Jack hasn't hurt his hand, his hands are fine. Christine, however, when she was a child, she hurt her hand in a very similar way. Christine sits down on the sofa saying she doesn't understand, and we come back to Christmas. Everyone is sat at the table. Fung, Christine's mum and dad, and Bobby are all sat at the table with Christine, and they're celebrating. Adam comes over and reveals that they're back together, and then gives her a present, which is a photo album of a lot of the fun times that she's had. She notes that It's as if she's seen her life flash before her eyes and then she realises what this is. We cut to a car accident where Christine's in the driver's seat, eggs are strewn all over the car. The Andre Bocelli song is playing in the background and she is covered in blood. She's looking outside the window and the man in the rain mac is stood outside as police sirens are going all around her and the fire department is trying to cut her out of the car. She gets out of the car and she is put on a gurney and she is about to be taken towards the hospital. The man is saying, it's all his fault, he's so sorry. He stepped out without thinking, and she tried to avoid him. He tried to save her, but could only save the boy. We cut back to the room where Christine was celebrating Christmas, and her family tell her that it's okay, she can go. She sees Jack one more time, and he hugs her. She tells the room that she loves them, And the episode ends. Now, I remember the buzz around this show. I remember the buzz around this episode. When I first saw this episode, in fact, when I first saw the buzz around this episode, um, I was like, inside number nine, it's just going to be a boring rip-off of, like, League of Gentlemen. It's never going to be as good. I thought I'd matured from that kind of content. I thought I'd got away from it. I thought I wasn't in that, that zone anymore. But Sheridan Smith got absolutely praised everywhere for this. And I was like, I'm going to have to watch this show, aren't I? I'm going to have to watch this episode and watch this show because everyone is talking about it. At the time, Sheridan Smith, you couldn't turn on your TV in England without having Sheridan Smith on it. She was everywhere. She was in everything. Any drama, any big TV show, any fucking advert, she was in it. So for the Inside Number 9 guys to get her at that point in her career was like getting Margot Robbie in 2023 when I'm recording this now. Ridiculous. Could not get hold of her for love and the money. And yet the Inside Number 9 guys got her. The script was excellent. The performance was excellent, and the concept 
of doing a holiday every 13 months was inspired. Absolutely brilliant. And now I'm all about high praise on this show. But that was one of the peak episodes that I've ever watched of anything. It got me in such a way that I didn't know what was coming next. And I liked that. I found it incredibly clever. And for half an hour of TV, it is near perfect. Episode 3, The Trial of Elizabeth Gadge. With Shearsmith as Mr. Warren, Pemberton as Mr. Clark, David Warner as Sir Andrew Pike, Ruth Sheen as Elizabeth Gadge, Sinead Matthews as Sarah Nutter, Jim Howick as Thomas Nutter, Paul Kay as Richard Two Shoes, and Trevor Cooper as George Waterhouse. It's 17th century England, and in the village of Little Happens, Sir Andrew Pike has invited Mr. Warren and Mr. Clark, two famous witch hunters, to come to their village and do a witch trial to determine whether Elizabeth Gadge is actually a witch. Of the two, Mr. Warren seems very much the archetypical witch hunter. He seems to think that everything is a witch or of witchcraft origin, and Mr. Clark is a little bit more sceptical, but doesn't deny that there are certain aspects of the supernatural at play. But the way that the witch trial is being portrayed as very tongue-in-cheek to a modern audience would be laughable. If we had that sort of trial today, we would all pick holes in it so easily. But back in what seems to be a simpler time, these people aren't believing what is in front of their eyes and just believe in what people have told them. Elizabeth has been brought to trial by her daughter and her son-in-law. This is due to the fact that her husband has died and they've been trying to get their inheritance ever since. And now they need the mother out of the way. So, the evidence given by Sarah and Thomas Nutter against Sarah's mother is the fact that she has been seen on nights going out and suckling from... (laughs) suckling from the teat of a black, hairy monster. And has also been seen dancing a jig with a dog. (laughs) And has also been... fucking hell. Seen conversing with a mouse named Snowflake, and when asked by Mr. Warren what what named is backwards, everyone starts to claim demon, but of course it's demand, and when he's pulled up on this, he says it's close enough. But one of the witnesses now to the trial is going to have to be the the mouse snowflake because Elizabeth Gadge has been seen conversing with it in its own language. Genuinely, like, part of me believes that this kind of shit went on. I've seen some programs about it and some of the stuff that they come out with is pure ridiculousness. And this is just an absolute parody of that. But it is certainly entertaining. I can't imagine what it would have been like living in that time with having some sort of education because the bias against it would probably mean you were up on a witch trial. After the testimony of George Waterhouse, who it turns out is actually, who was a businessman who's been scorned by Elizabeth Gadge because he was sold a cow which died and then she now owes him money because 
the husband has died. Court is dismissed because they start to make a mockery of the trial, laughing and joking and having Elizabeth Gadge lead the way in making jokes at the expense of Mr. Warren and the whole ordeal. Mr. Warren claims that she will talk and they will do it via torture. So they bring out some torture devices and start using them on her with a vague explanation of how it will determine that she is actually a witch, to which we get no real explanation. It all sounds like horseshit to me. I imagine that's what a lot of it was like. But it turns out that the creature that she has been suckling the teat of is actually Richard Two-Shoes, the man who is watching her throughout this trial and keeping her in her seat when she protests. He is then brought to trial and asked if she has done any sexual acts with him while his wife is there. <laughs> his wife's name is Goody Two-Shoes. Sorry, that amused me. So he claims that he hasn't done anything with this woman, but she is now claiming that she's been having extramarital affairs with Richard Two-Shoes. They adjourn for the evening, and by the morning, Clark is questioning his own involvement in this trial. He thinks that they've called the witch trial for the exact reason of the nutters both want her out of the way. And they're using witchcraft as an excuse. But Mr. Warren but Mr. Warren sticks by his guns and starts to question Mr. Clark and essentially asks if he's got the stomach for this anymore. And if he doesn't, maybe the devil's got to him too. Essentially threatening him. They bring Elizabeth Gadge back into the courtroom as well as the accusers. And Elizabeth Gadge has been stretched on a rack overnight to try and coerce a confession out of her. After Snowflake is revealed as the final witness and approaches Elizabeth Gadge, she is found guilty of being a witch. But Mr. Clark thinks that this has gone way too far and storms out of the courtroom, telling everyone I hope they're happy. Later that night, Mistress Gadge is laid with a hood over her in the courtroom where the trial was held. Mr. Clark comes in and starts speaking to the hooded figure. He reveals that it's actually Mr. Warren and that he's intending to burn him at the stake because he's gone too far. They know they won't remove the hood, so know that he is safe in his dealings. So essentially, he is safe because he will be able to kill this man without any real comeback on him. Mr. Warren is taken outside and put on the fire to burn. It's at this point that Mr. Clark tells Elizabeth Gadge that she can come out of hiding. And as she does, she tells him that the devil thanks him and snaps his neck. She tells Snowflake that they must leave together now. And she turns into a raven and flies off, leaving Mr. Warren burning to death and Mr. Clark dead in the barn. Now, there's a very similar episode in the TV show Blackadder, the first season, with another trial that is just absurd and... If these witch trials were like that, what the fuck were we doing as a fucking race? Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, we get a load of shit for not understanding the way people are these days, but Jesus Christ, back then, what was going on? But it's a funny episode. As you can hear throughout this, I've been laughing my ass off because it's just so stupid. Like Some of the shit that they come out with is just ridiculous. But the Inside Number 9 guys know how to do it, and they did it really well. Obviously going from such a serious episode as 12 Days of Christine to this one where it was just a little bit silly, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, daft, 
Um, it was good. It was really good. So I hope you're all right out there. I really would like to hear from you guys. So come say hi. And um, I'm going to leave it there for today. I think we've gone long enough. I know that there are some long episodes out there. So thank you for listening. And I will speak to you soon. Bye. Well, that's all for now, amigos. If you managed to make it to the end of my ramblings, thank you. And if you want to rate, share, subscribe, comment, it's all appreciated. Until next time.